welcome to episode 26 of Vague Zone. I'm Thomas. And I am Daniel. And today we have a special guest. We have Kyle Jackson, my buddy, aka Navocado, from the rap group Blaze Wave. And he's here to talk to us about the Animatrix. Say hello, Kyle. What's up? What's up? How's it going? It's going good. Thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Okay, so the synopsis on IMDb for the Animatrix is a collection of nine short films featuring stories related to the Matrix. And so... Pretty simple. Yeah, pretty straightforward. It's a nice little Matrix film festival. So I guess I'll start with our guest, uh, Kyle. What do you think about the Animatrix upon rewatch? You know, the Animatrix is something that I've probably now seen it like three, four, maybe five times. And each time I see it, I would say I like it more. Like, I'm pretty sure I saw it in theaters at the time. And at the time, I I was a little bit of a american animation snob like i thought anime was too like weird or it wasn't for me or something yeah uh, and so honestly the animatrix was one of the first times i'd ever really seen like sort of japanese style animation um so i did find it you know sort of visually uh breathtaking i, I remember initially and even upon you know rewatch the fact that each of the movies is so different or each of the short films is so different and the style is completely um, you know, unique to each individual vignette uh, is really cool. Um, but I just remember at the time, you know, like you guys, I was a big just fan of the franchise. And so getting a much deeper look at the origin story and the sort of universe of the Matrix uh, way beyond what sort of more commercially minded blockbusters could really give us in the two to three hours um, was really big for me just to sort of get a sense of kind of what the deeper uh backstory and, and sort of historical and re- like futuristic uh, vision, the dystopian vision of the future that the Matrix is sort of all about. Um, I feel like the Animatrix kind of gives you the best sense of that. Yeah, yeah right on. I, I totally, totally, totally with you on that. Um, what, uh, I guess I'll just ask, what's your favorite one if you had to pick one? I'm uh, really partial to the first two about uh, the second Renaissance. Uh, that really just sort of gives you the um, backstory of the human machine war. But I sort of realized, I think, for the first time upon this watch, that it's really a documentary made by the machines about machine history. Yeah, yeah. Which is kind of interesting. You're sort of getting the machine perspective and it's, uh, you know, selective editing, shall we say. Um, Yeah, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Those two are my favorite... um, just because of the sort of creativity and I don't know, I think there's a lot sort of psychologically that is going on there in terms of its uh, vision of what human nature is. Yeah. I love the contrast. Cause it's very like newsreel. It's like, you know, it's objective and like, yeah, it's like the, the humans, they didn't want to like, they didn't want to have treaties or something like that. And it's just like, yeah, it's like the machines one-sided view of this. Yeah. This fucking horrible war that destroyed everything. And yeah, up until this point, we've only gotten like the Morpheus speech or we've only got it from characters in the matrix. So to see it in this frame, is just really interesting. Yeah. It's weird that you, so you mentioned it as like through the eyes of the machines, but it's interesting that it says it's from the archives of Zion. It's the Zion archives. So, and it is interesting that it's like this spiritual figure this that's like made of light. And so it does kind of feel like it's from the perspective of the machines that it's making humans look like the bad guys. And, yeah. and also pretty stupid because of the decisions that they make over the course of, you know, the history of the back, the backstory. 
but uh but yeah it's it's interesting that this is part of i guess what humans are keeping alive as a as a historical document yeah and i mean until you just said that i didn't really think about the fact that you know this is supposedly right the human uh, archives that are are telling them what happened right yeah what sort of watching through this time um really made me think about is that the human population is allowed to survive and is tolerated to a certain extent by the machines right yeah like the machines become like caretakers basically right but you know when the machines have uh you know won the war and brought humanity to their knees and uh they're you know giving them a no option contract to sign away the flesh of humanity you know there's no actual reason why the machines uh need to allow the sort of human survival that becomes zion right it it seems to me that you know the efficiency the infinite efficiency of uh these machines would have made eradication a possibility had they wanted it so maybe there's some way that human like the machines want humanity to survive for whatever reason yeah uh, in in this sort of real world outside of uh just the population that they have enslaved and maybe that uh, is partially to explain for why they have this uh this vision of what happened being sort of taught to the surviving human populations. Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird because it is like the machines don't need to create the matrix. They could just use us as batteries. They don't need to give us this simulated reality. And I don't really know what they have to gain by doing that. Like this, I feel like the second Renaissance, this whole story kind of gives me more questions because, and I, and I like wrote down a lot of them. So it's like, first off, one of the first things we get is the robots are depicted as slaves and uh, they're basically pulling this giant uh, container. Uh, we don't know what's in the container, but, but uh, you know, they're, they're pulling it manually. They're doing manual labor. And it's like, why yeah. doesn't this container just have an engine <laughs> that it's able to like carry itself up the hill? Yeah, why like, did why humans... are they doing it pyramid style? Like, actually, yeah. like, pure, like Egyptian slave style to build this. Why did, thing. <laughs> Why did humans create robots that could feel bad about their jobs? <laughs> like, like I want to make a, a machine that can feel pain and uh, have existential dread and stuff like that. Yeah, and I think um, it, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because I wanted to bring up the fact that I love this director for this particular story is um, uh, Mahiro Maeda, right. and so he's yeah Mahiro Maeda. So it's from like. Uh, what's it called studio ghibli that's where you is like from and so yeah like the design of the robots is kind of like cute and quirky in some yeah. frames like when the the representatives go into congress and are like dressed as a, a bride and groom and they like kind of have like a, a goofy little smile on their like robot faces and yeah then like get like just taken and ripped apart it's just like really strange uh juxtaposition between just like the style of animation and just seeing humanity fall and humanity like yeah. make all these terrible the decisions. incredibly aggressive violence that gets portrayed yeah like oh man it's so rough like the guy getting ripped out of the machine like mm-hmm. this kid is like picking a piece of candy out of something it's just like just really grotesque and yeah they and do all those the, things really well the scene where those three guys are beating up what looks like a woman initially yeah. like and then they like rip apart her clothes her breast is hanging out she's screaming and crying one of them hits her on the head with a hammer and they start to tear at her clothes and her flesh and they tear her flesh off revealing that she's a robot and she's like screaming and crying and it's distorted because she's a machine 
And I think the last thing she says is I'm real before she gets like shot with a shotgun. And so it's this incredibly visceral violence. Like they're really trying to convey like humans are committing genocide against these robots. Yeah, that scene um, always gets me too. Cause I'm like, oh shit. Like it's like the humans turning on each other. It's like, no, like the, the switch yeah. happens and it's like, fuck. Like, yeah, they're just like just beating up a, a robot mercilessly. And then there's one shot where it's like behind a guy as he's doing like a, Vietnam kind of execution on like yeah. on a robot and it, like the parts kind of explode out and it's just like yeah just dark it's very dark and then like it kind of switches as the robots gain power we see that scene that you were talking about of a man being ripped out of a a mech and all of his limbs being torn off yeah and we get when they're establishing the matrix we have them experimenting on live human bodies like with their faces cut off with the back half of their bodies cut off some of them are cut in half and they're just like playing with yeah, the brains and watching that. Like it's it's nightmare shit. <laughs> like it's it it's really cool how far it goes. But you know, I don't think it's a coincidence. And you know what you were saying, Daniel, about how it is. I think intentional that the natural instinct of human beings, once they've developed this technology, right, is to enslave them. And um, I I felt really viscerally watching through this time that um, it's sort of making a lot of. Uh, comments about sort of how slavery has operated in history. You know, I study American history. Um, that's what I do professionally. And I think the sort of uh, the narrative of humans being turned into machines by the industrial revolution, um, that's ob- sort of an obvious uh, parallel or inversion that kind of goes on um, with the machines then yeah. incrementalizing human beings. But also I think that it's really making a commentary on how human beings have treated other human beings yeah, as disposable machines, tools, um, subjects of their ultimate total control throughout human history uh, in the form of human slavery. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely. there's a court case uh, when, so, so in the movie there's a, uh, machine, I forget what his name. I want to say it's like B166ER or something like that. Bigger is what it looks like. Yes, and yeah, you're right. Bigger kills uh, his master and his pets, and we get like a gruesome scene of um, he's exploding a person's face in his own hands. Um, but then it goes to trial, which leads to another question of like, why are we giving trials to robots? <laughs> um, but some of the dialogue from that trial is lifted from. I, I believe actual court case about um, like a black person killing a white person and how, you know, back in the day, our government didn't recognize them as people. Right. And they specifically say uh, property. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder that yeah, people have a right to destroy their property or something along those lines. It's interesting that you point out that the Android's name uh, phonetically looks like bigger. I wonder if that's an allusion to the character bigger Thomas in the Richard mm-hmm. Wright novel, Native Son. Possibly. Yeah, hmm. yeah, I've seen that theory around. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that's deep. Yeah, oh man, it makes me appreciate this movie so much more. Like this movie is just incredibly, just just very vibrant with the things that it kind of introduces to the Matrix lore. I think it only has like a couple of things about it that I'm not crazy about, but yeah, these first two are were my favorite up until Beyond kind of shows up towards like the middle, towards the later end. It's interesting that both of you have referred to this as the first two, because when I watched it, the first uh, short in the series was Fly- Final Flight of the Osiris. Dude, and so yeah, I there's think like there's different versions of it. Like, yeah, there's like a theatrical uh, ordering and then like a DVD ordering, I think. And there might have been a difference between the two. 
Huh, that's funny. Mm. I almost bought a, this on DVD to watch it, so I would have saw the version that you, or yeah, I think I might have saw the version you watched. Maybe. Yeah, and I think different streaming services probably have the different ordering or something. Yeah, and I think that's a, a totally fine choice because the final flight of the Osiris is not a good short film, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't like it either. Totally fine with having it, just like <laughs> I think that's my least favorite one. Super, yeah, um, it's actually, I don't think it's my. Oh yeah, I don't think it's my least favorite one, but it's it's <laughs> the second least favorite, if that makes sense. I don't know how to word that. So after the second Renaissance, uh, we move on to Kids Story, which is directed by Shinichiro Watanabe, uh, who directed Cowboy Bebop, Samurai Champloo, Space Dandy, um, and this is a backstory about the character. Is his name just Kid in the movies? Yeah, and I he actually is, uh, think in HBO Go we get program before this. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah they switch them all around. I think. Okay, yeah, my. Yeah, maybe you should lead the charge on like what comes next then. But uh, well, I don't know. But the, the, the audience could have watched either one. Like I just did it on HBO Max today. But yeah, and I think I was going. I, I my ordering matches what is listed on Wikipedia too, which is weird. Hmm. Um, but shall I, we I, shall we dive I, into I, kids' story? Sorry, I think I think I might have just made a mistake. I think you're correct. Yeah, kids' story comes no, from no. program. No, no, no. I have it in my notes as well. Program. Okay number two okay yeah okay cool well let's let's continue on with kid story because I, I like this one a lot it's, it's a trip so yeah kid story it's the background of this character kid and basically how he was awakened um he's sitting at his computer talking about how writing about how when he dreams it feels more real than real life and then we get him at school and it's sort of this oppressive dull environment that I, is sort of contrasting against neo's boring office life um and this is just the story of how he becomes awakened. And it ends with him uh, fleeing the agents and, you know, kind of leaping off of a, a building to escape them and whispering that he he believes, Neo, he believes. And then it's revealed that um, he he woke himself up from the Matrix, which I think is a pretty interesting reveal. But how did you guys feel about this? Uh, Kyle, we can start with you. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one from the perspective of kind of giving us another example of someone getting freed from the matrix like there are a few allusions to it in the films but other than neo we don't really see it right so this is another chance for us to see how the sort of world of the hackers getting in touch with uh people who are potential candidates for awakening um happens and so i think it's another data point in uh telling us sort of who those people are and why they might be sort of anomalous figures and what, what it is about their particular form of alienation while also questioning uh, and, you know, sort of what the, at the funeral for kid, you know, the people sort of derisively um, refer to as, you know, denying their reality as a self-defense mechanism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas I think what the matrix is sort of offering and maybe this, I don't know, but maybe it goes to sort of the trans allegory stuff that you guys have talked about on the previous episodes uh, this idea that, well, maybe what we perceive as reality isn't the real reality. And sometimes you just have to, you know, sort of take the plunge, take the leap into mm -hmm. the leap of faith into um, seeing things for as they really are, or maybe not even what they really are, but seeing things, um, as they can be, as they could be, as you want them to be, as you imagine them to be. I don't know. Uh, I, I just like that idea of taking the plunge and then seeing it literally in uh, the form of kid jumping off a building. Um, I mean, it's a little on the nose, but I, I kind of like it. 
Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of that uh, Lincoln Park video of uh, Faint when the kids like dudes like all like falling off this building, and it's just like kind of just real shaky cam on that. But this is a much more poetic little presentation. Like you get the beginning where he he's like in the air, like floating, and then yeah, the story starts over, and then we see that's how it concludes. But then he wakes up and he's on the Nebuchadnezzar, and it's all good because he's talking to Neo. So it's interesting that you mention uh, that Lincoln Park video because one of the animators on this is Kazuto Nakazawa, and he actually worked on this Lincoln Park video, Breaking the Habit. I think that's the one you're that's, referring yeah, to. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Um, he was also an animator. He he directed the anime sequence in Kill Bill, and so this definitely has like some of that similar style where like uh, the animation looks sort of scratchy, like it was drawn with like a really sharp pencil or a pen. Yeah, I love the part when he like is getting cornered inside of the school hallway and then he like pulls out the skateboard out of his yeah. uh, locker and it's like like weaves by them but yeah the the lines are kind of playing with the boundaries of everything yeah it feels very it's like malleable i guess is the word i'm gonna use and like and the way motion is drawn yeah it's like everything kind of feels a little stretchy and loose and i don't know yeah we it's get really a little cool. bit of that in world record um but yeah i like this version of it and yeah it's like that kid's story is very similar in some ways to Neo's where like at least maybe that's just the artistic choice of having his teacher call him Mr. Popper in the same mm. way that uh Smith calls Neo Mr. Anderson. Mr. And, Anderson, yeah. And yeah, and then like the whole theme of the leap of faith is something that Morpheus tells Neo when he enters the Matrix for the first time. It's like you have to take the leap of faith. And so to see Kid do it, it's it makes me appreciate his character a lot more because it just doesn't seem like fanfare out of nowhere. It's like his journey is very much you know, like parallel to how Neo got into the Matrix, and so yeah, it makes me kind of it more it endears his character a little bit more for me. And it's interesting that like yeah, there seems to be this message here that it, there isn't a problem with you. There's a problem with the reality that you are forced to exist within, and yeah. so like your disconnection from that reality, that is what makes you special. In in the case of Neo and Kid here, um, yeah, and then not to. Uh, jump ahead but in world record the one about the track star um the voiceover i think talks about how you know the people who can sometimes break through or discover the matrix or wake up or whatever are those who you know possess intuition sensitivity and a questioning nature hmm. it's an interesting sort of uh you gotta know. rebel man you gotta be a <laughs> rebel yeah yeah so i want to talk a little bit about program because this is one that like I feel like is one of the stronger ones visually, but I feel yeah, like it's kind absolutely. of held, gets held down a little bit by the dialogue. And that's, it hurts me to say that because I'm such a big Phil Lamar fan. Phil Lamar has literally been the voice in my ear for so many cartoons over my entire life and so many characters. And the, yeah, the style of it is just really cool and just extremely, it's very cinematic to me, just like the kind of samurai battle that they're having. Like, and yeah, just the, like they're talking about it in a really on the nose way a little bit. I didn't like write down much of what they're saying, but they're basically like they're having like it's a couple having an argument about whether or not to go back to Zion, correct? correct me back to Zion. the Matrix. Back to the Matrix, yeah. Yeah. One of them. So the man in this relationship, it's a man and a woman, and the woman's name is Sis, which is interesting. Yeah. But um, he is saying that, yeah, he wants to go back into the Matrix with her. Uh, that he loves her and that's where they will go together and to escape the real world. So it's kind of like a Cypher's Dilemma sort of thing. But um, yeah, you mentioned the animation. Uh, this was directed by Yoshiaki Kawajiri and he's the director of Ninja Scroll, Wicked City, and Demon City Shinjuku. And Demon City Shinjuku was actually a movie that I 
uh, I I almost recommended we watch. I remember it was between that and something else. Yeah, but, I need um, to check that out. Yeah, he's a great. Th- I think this is like the most visually interesting of them, or like the most visually stunning, in my opinion. Um, yeah, yeah. There's so many just like really good spots of it. Like when, like there's a close up of of sis when she's like looking the other direction, and then all I forget what they're called, but like the archways kind of extend to the back. And yeah, it's, it's like a play on the the guns, more guns thing. But I think it's mm-hmm. a little bit more like a little more poetic imagery with all of like those archways extending back, and it's just like the red like that's just contrast the white area so well yeah it's just like a lot of really nice little frames in this short film yeah this one feels like one of the weaker ones conceptually like it doesn't have it's not adding a lot of depth to you know our understanding of what the matrix is or and it's not really posing any interesting philosophical questions in my opinion one right which is the sort of central thesis or one of the available theses i would say that the matrix sort of offers you which is you know what winds up sort of arguing and encapsulating is what's real doesn't matter. What matters is how we live our lives. Hmm. And I think that's kind of an interesting, you know, counterpoint to, I don't know if you guys are Westworld fans. Not but really. No? Oh man, you're missing out. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, First season, yeah. Second season, shaky. What about third season, bro? <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't tell you, unfortunately. <laughs> no. Well, anyways, I, I would say it's an interesting counterpoint to the sort of uh, big aha moment in Westworld. And I think this first season is that, you know, what is real is irreplaceable. And that's what makes it sort of superior to AI or to things that are indistinguishable from reality. But the difference is what is real is irreplaceable and what is artificial can be um, infinitely remade. And so I dig that. And whereas here in the matrix, the guy who wants to go back to the, you know, the world before he knew the truth says, <laughs> what's real doesn't matter. What matters is how we live our lives. And, you know, I think the sort of cybernetics, uh, philosophical wor- milieu is kind of consumed with that question of like, is what matters, what's real. Um, and, and sort of, where's the difference and where's the, the dividing line between consciousness and, you know, that special spark that human beings seem to possess, which we also get glimpses of in some of the other movies or shorts. Yeah, yeah I feel like I, they sort of mentioned... Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, I feel like they sort of get to that in matriculation when they're talking about, like, we can't just tell the robots to have a truth with us. We have to, like, trick, like, the inception in, in, into them. So it's, like, it's their idea. So, like, I think that is kind of what you're talking about, too, where, like, the origin of the idea is is almost just as important as the idea itself, I think. Exactly. Or I guess where, where it comes from could be very crucial to how it's interpreted. It's like, yeah. I feel like we're getting that question in the first movie already just with the character of Cypher. Like, his yeah. his wanting to deny the Matrix and or deny reality and go back into the Matrix. Um, so I, I don't feel like this is posing any new questions. Um, I think maybe as a standalone piece or as like an introduction of, you know, what this franchise is about i think it'd probably be pretty strong um but i think just as like a little a little narrative within the the matrix um and like a animation showcase i think it's really great yeah i agree yeah just like oh, sis. And, uh, her, her design is just fantastic just like just i'm ner- just and, nerding out about like her huge white hair and just like the horse and everything and it's really fucking weird that we get two futurama cast members in this with it's <laughs> philomar and john dimaggio who plays oh, better <laughs> 
I recognized those voices, but I couldn't place them. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> All right. So uh, I want to talk about world record a little bit. Yeah. I fucking loved this one. <laughs> um, so this was, this is Takeshi Koike, I think is how it's pronounced. Um, he d- did the Afro Samurai pilot. He did some of the Lupin the Third movies. And he did an anime called Redline, which I've never seen. I've only seen Afro Samurai. I've never seen Redline, but I've seen the trailer from it for it. And I've heard a lot about it. Um, it's like a racing anime where these guys have giant pompadours and stuff. And it just has a very distinct style. And yeah, it, it's immediately recognizable as as uh, the guy who did World Record. But um, yeah, so this is about a runner who he runs so fast that he overcomes the physical limitations imposed on him by his own body and maybe by physics. And through doing that, he is able to break free of the Matrix. Um, and that's, yeah, that is basically like the synopsis of this. Yeah, this one's such a mindfuck. Like, I am, I'm, I feel like I have a weird relationship with it because it's so, I feel like it's a little off putting at time with just the way that it's kind of designed and the angles of it. And yeah, it's, it feels like, like thematically, not thematically, um, the tone of it feels like it's the most, like, kind of silly and strange and uneasy out of everything. Maybe that's just the way that the characters are designed and everything is framed. But this is the one I'm, like, the, the least comfortable watching. Just the this, the way that things unfold and just the whole story is just, like, very very odd and very, like, a very physical thing that he goes through. Like, when his knees are, like, or like the muscles on his knees are, like, breaking apart and, like, the crowd is, like, screaming. And, like, like it's, it's really odd. This one's really strange, but... Upon rewatch, I think I appreciated it a lot more. Um, yeah, particularly because of, yeah, just like just thinking about him getting past this boundary and like just kind of lift, like, there's this whole thing about lifting the veil. And there are people like who are into the paranormal talk about like there's certain places on earth where there's the veil is very thin and you, you can kind of look to this other side where things get kind of weird and things get kind of questionable. And I, I was thinking about that while watching this because. Yeah, the Matrix is this huge simulation. Everything is fake. And so if you're trapped in it and if you aren't woken up, what are the other ways to sort of get a glimpse of the other side and get a glimpse of theoretically what, you know, is controlling everything? And I think the way that it's presented is very like feels very grotesque and very painful when he wakes up inside of the like the tube of water and he's like screaming. Mm -hmm. He's like trying to get out. And then like the machine kind of like pulls him back in and like they like put like the beams into him or whatever it's just like it's that's like pure horror for me it's like yeah. kind of being in that trapped world and just having yeah this... guys just going for a run and then he ne- next thing he's like in a bunch of liquid with a robot like electrocuting yeah. him and shit yeah and then sucked back into it and so yeah it's just like that horror of you get to see the the sunny thing above everything that the machines have destroyed but then eventually you're gonna drip back down and then you're just gonna be stuck inside of this darkness and so yeah just the, the themes of this one really got to me upon rewatch i was like not a fan of it when i first watched it but this time i was like yeah this one's really really dark and really heavy yeah definitely the grotesqueness of it of the popping muscles yeah. is something that has stood out to me in my mind in my memory uh of it but the more i think about it you know there's something significant about it being the hundred yard dash, which or hundred meters, um, because that is sort of considered the pinnacle measurement of peak human athletic performance. <laughs> like there is no greater barometer of 
what the ultimate human capacity for physical exertion is in some ways than the hundred meter dash. And that's why, you know, they say that there are certain, like, there's a certain time that can like not physically humanly be beaten. And that quest to continually beat that is what drives and obsesses uh, these Olympic athletes. And they continue to surpass it, but they're, you know, the theory is that there is a point at which it can never be surpassed because of the limitations of, physics, I guess. Um, but I think, you know, there's something compelling about the idea of human beings always trying to surpass that which is uh, supposedly possible for the human. Wasn't there like a phenomenon yeah. where it's like, as soon as someone achieves something thought impossible, suddenly, like a bunch of people start achieving it? Yeah. And that that I think that theory was specifically based on the, the 100 meter dash. Meter. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty fascinating. I like that. Or maybe it was the like, six minute mile or something like that you know it's like one of those things where but i think you're right i think it was the the 100 meters where you know we don't know it's possible until we see it and then once people once the bar has been set that gives people something to reach for yeah once we've accepted the possibility of something then it becomes attainable and you know people will get there i guess I also one thing I need, I need to mention I like his trainer I think the the scene with the trainer him and the trainer is like probably the funniest scene in this entire animatrix movie as a whole is when he's like telling him like you can't like you can't do this in the way that his hands are moving like this really exaggerated hip hop hand movements he's like you can't do this man like like you're just gonna go too far and then he's just kind of just very stoic and just like not moving he's like yeah I'm, I'm gonna like, I'm still gonna do it I just like the contrast of just those characters and yeah, I appreciate when this movie kind of gets more funny because there's a lot of really heavy things and heavy ideas in The Matrix. And I appreciate that through animation, they have found ways and they have found moments of brevity in all of this because there's not many. And I think it, it really helps. <laughs> yeah, and very on brand for The Matrix. Also, just like moments of random sexiness, just like hella yeah. girl <laughs> wear and stuff. But I kind of like, like it's part of The Matrix aesthetic, right? Is that like the sort of goth cyberpunk vibe is inherently like sexual yeah there wasn't enough like fetish wear in this though i feel like not enough not enough latex no it's a good point not in this one but final flight of the osiris i feel like is just damn near the introduction to a porno movie almost like it's just that was over the top like i said that was the one that started with so i was like this is how we're setting the tone for the animatrix (laughs) is like strip sword fighting all right I'm I'm on board. Oh, I peaked too. It's just like, oh, just just bang already. Just like just come on. Yeah, when they first said I peaked, I I I understood that as P-E-A-K-E-D. I was like, oh. It's like, okay. All right. Yeah, what what would it be like to to do LSD inside of the the realms of the matrix? Possibilities are you don't need to. Just fucking put that needle in the back of your head and you can go wherever you want. Yeah. I mean, and that does raise a good point though. This the Animatrix is extremely psychedelic. Yeah. In basically every way. And I mean, I don't know anything about the Wachowski's drug habits, but I would be shocked if there wasn't some sort of, uh, I mean, there's just so many fractals yeah. all throughout all this, so many kaleidoscopic sequences. There's the sequence uh, when they're in the sort of haunted house where the girl is like overcome with this like euphoric glee and like falls into like a bliss, like trance like state almost. I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of that sort of uh, dabbling with the limits of consciousness in this yeah. animated. Matriculated especially has a ton going on. Uh, Wachowskis have done DMT and have gone to space, I feel like. No doubt. 
Um, yeah, so yeah, their movies are definitely visually turned up to eleven. Even like Speed Racer is just like candy. Oh my god, pure, yeah, just like just neon lights all the day, all day. Um, so the next one is Beyond, and that is the haunted house one. It's by Koji Morimoto. Uh, they were an animation director for Akira, key animator on Fist of the North Star, and they directed segments for Robot Carnival and Memories. If you're familiar with any of those, um, and this is and, uh, just just Akira. Yeah, same. <laughs> um, and like I'm familiar with Fist of the North Star. I haven't actually watched it, but um, yeah, this is about. Uh, a woman whose cat runs away and uh, she asks some kids where it's gone and they say it's gone to the haunted house in the city and the haunted house is a site of matrix glitches where gravity does not operate as it should and lights do not operate as they should there's just a lot of oddities there that the kids explore um how did you guys feel about this one yeah i mean it's it's got that kind of cutesy uh japanese tv and movie like I, I like i recognized like the sequences sort of you know the sort of uh street kids hanging around the back alley yeah. chasing. I feel like i've seen that that was like definitely an homage <laughs> to like other anime stuff that i've seen or um but i kind of you know i think that the larger sort of on the nose i mean a lot of these are kind of on the nose but the sort of deeper point that like all anomalies and special magic is going to be eliminated mm-hmm. by the uh, violent surveillance society that we all live in. Um, I think, you know, there's something to that and that, you know, the matrix in general, it, it, it's telling a prophecy of the logical conclusion of surveillance capitalism that we're living uh, through, you know, and that this idea that the more data is accumulated and processed by computers, the greater control over, um, forcing conformity you know, you know the, the great degree to which inf- conformity can be enforced um, and outliers sort of eliminated or corrected. Uh, I think that's a very real parable for our uh, big tech dominated world 15 years later, you know. Uh, I mean, it's kind of an obvious prediction to make, but it's also, you know, eerily true. Um, I thought the most, wait. Okay, Thomas, you're kind of lagging, sorry. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was gonna say like, Okay, I think you're still catching up. <laughs> you good? Okay. Um, yeah, I was going to say, I think the, for me, like the most poignant part of this one is just, you know, the, the 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 agents come in, they destroy the anomaly, the haunted house, and they replace it with a parking lot. And so the next day the kids go back and they're throwing bottles into the parking lot and testing out to see if the anti-gravity sort of situation is is still prevalent. And it's not. And so the fact that it's a parking lot, it is just... You know, anything special has to be crushed. Um, anything out of the ordinary, anything that will bring you joy has to be turned into um, oppressive dullness. And so, so yeah, it's, it's I don't know. It, it, it points back to Neo at his office job and the kid at school. And it's just, you know, the problem isn't with you. The problem is with your environment, I guess. And the people who want to uphold a shitty, boring environment. Yeah, this one is like my favorite because of that theme. I think it does it in a way that is the most like 
blissful and enjoyable. Uh, the one that's like the most fun to kind of be in this world and inhabit this space with these kids. And I mentioned the thing about the veil earlier. And I think this one has the most literal version of that, where they find like a little like window into the matrix and they're like, you know, they're having fun with it as if it's like a swimming hole. They're like kind of taking turns, jumping into like this weird mm-hmm. space and like having nosebleeds and shit. And yeah, then once it kind of shows up on the government's radar, it's like, that's when the police tape comes out and it gets erased and turned into a parking lot. And yeah. There's just something like, just very like sad about that but also just like yeah it feels like these kids had their playhouse and it was destroyed by the government but but that playhouse just so happens to be the matrix and this like this door into this fantastical world it reminds me of when i was a kid there was uh in my neighborhood there was this just dirt lot where Mm. nothing had been developed yet and so all the kids would go there and we would uh build ramps and like jump our bikes and throw our bikes into the air and uh, we would like burn mattresses and shit and we like kids would be smoking (laughs) weed and stuff (laughs) like we would just like get into trouble like it was just a place where like all the kids would go and then get into trouble and they closed it down and they ended up building a park there they cleaned it up for us they put grass and walkways in and benches and stuff and it just completely (laughs) it ruined the magic that we had all saw in that space to to make it more i don't know better conform to the standards of the surrounding it's it's like only kids can see the magic you know and i think that's kind of a common theme in a lot of kids and family movies um but then when you see it in this sort of darker context of the magic that the kids are seeing, you know, threatens the existential reality of the adult world, um, you know, that's kind of taking it to the next level. And I think there is, you know, if, if one of the larger themes of the major is about sort of conformity and the pressures to conform, um, I think this short from the animators really pinpoints that moment to the loss of innocence and when you, you know, are told to put away childish things or stop believing in magic or Santa Claus or whatever the, the case might be. And so I think the fact that they are these sort of playful teenagers and kids, yeah. you know, also going back to the earlier short about kid, you know, I think there's something about that youthfulness that also uh, is connected to this idea of disillusionment, right? Like what happens to the, the regular straight real world is people lose their sense of wonder, their sense yeah. that any possible and they go into their narrowly prescribed coding and just fulfill their you know instrumental tool machine function that's kind of the societal critique where it's children are the ones who believe that you know the rules are meant to be bent or broken and that uh maybe a different reality is possible and 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 we are going to be the ones to bring it about yeah the rules haven't like taken grasp of them yet they haven't sunk their fingers in yet um, yeah, there's literally a line, I think, if not the first movie, they're in the second when they talk about, yeah, like Neo being one of the oldest people to be brought into this world via this like recruitment um, program that they have. And yeah, the fact that it's very risky for someone to be very old and the fact that like they might want to go back. And that's kind of what we see with Cypher is just like, fuck this. He's like, I don't believe Morpheus anymore. Like I was totally fine just being in in that in the program. And so just take me back. And yeah, just everything you said, Kyle, was absolutely poignant and on point. Yeah, it's like the fact that, yeah, the kids see this as a fantastical world and, yeah, adults would do anything to kind of shut them down to funnel them into this program that they are already programmed into. Should we move on to a detective story? This one is my favorite visually. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's a good one. This is by uh, Shinichiro Watanabe, who also did Kids Story. Um, once again, director of Cowboy Bebop and Samurai Champloo. Um, this one is a, a noir. It is black and white. And it is about a private investigator who is hired to find Trinity um, and does that. <laughs> what do you think, Kyle? Yeah, I was super into it. Um, I feel like I... Like the last time I watched this, I feel like I like didn't even pay attention or I skipped this one or something. I'd like completely forgotten about this. But the visuals are just so cool. It's got that sort of, I mean, obviously it's film noir, but it's got this cool like snow and smog and smoke over the city effect. Yeah. It's really dope. Um, I'm also like writing a research paper about uh, like secret agents and private mm -hmm. detectives in the 1910s right now. So I was very much like in the mindset to watch this. I love the sort of, archaic surveillance technology like they're using like man manual analog typewriters yeah. to tap some sort of you know proto-futuristic uh internet in this version of the matrix i guess um so i that i just love the whole like stylistic element of it and then also it encouraged me to really look up through the looking glass because this is you know all this alice in wonderland stuff keeps getting mentioned in all these yeah. uh, matrix and this one has the sort of most explicit references to it. Well, I actually Googled through the looking glass because I'm an uncultured swine who's never read it. Um, and it's like way trippier than Alice in Wonderland. And it's all about this like inverted world where everything is opposites and mirrored of how it is in the normal world. Um, so it's really got a lot of the most you know, prevalent themes throughout the matrix, um, you know, apparently in this classic work of British literature. And I re read on Wikipedia, of course, that the final uh, line of the novel is, life, what is it but a dream? Mm. Which is something we hear Ooh. in various shapes, forms and fashions throughout this Matrix series. That's awesome. Also, uh, Lewis Carroll, I don't know if you've heard, but uh, a lot of psychedelic elements of the Alice in Wonderland stories. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was just gonna say, I, I, I love this one. I think it's really, really sleek. And I like that we get a little bit of Trinity kind of hanging out with him towards the end. And yeah, I just appreciate when these characters kind of me uh, mesh together in a way that I think is uh, a good contrast. Like we have this like noir, like I'm not Dick Tracy, but yeah, like this noir kind of guy. Uh, and he's teaming up with this cyberpunk kind of like badass chick. And yeah, it's like the, the contrast between that and yeah, just the, the black and white does it really well. I think again, like I like when it has little moments like the cat, he, uh, he runs out and his cat throws him his hat. Oh and he's yeah. Like, hey, yeah. It's like it's little like silly moments like that where, yeah, it, it That's has a very lot of cowboy fun bebop. With, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Where it has a lot of fun with the genre and just like, just little visual things like that. And yeah, just, this is a really strong one. This is probably one of my favorite, like top three, probably. I feel like this was the one that I had like the least thoughts about. <laughs> um, I enjoyed it, like, but it was just. Um, yeah, I don't have a lot of like notes. Yeah. Yeah, it was like a, it was just like a fun little story. I enjoyed the uh, the tone of it, the animation style. It was interesting, li like you've said, the collision between the style of Trinity and you know her her latex, what we expect of the Matrix, and this sort of weird past <laughs> like retro aesthetic that um, yeah. the main characters bring to the table. Um, but yeah, I, I, to me, it was just kind of a, it was just what, what do you get when the Cowboy Bebop guy makes a Matrix story? For sure. Yeah. I feel that. Yeah. I, I feel that way about mm, Beyond a little bit too, where 
yeah, it, it does add to the, the lore of everything, but um, I feel like I just walk away just enjoying inhabiting the world more than kind mm-hmm. of being super thought-provoked about. Sorry, <laughs> I usually walk away just kind of being happy that I've inhabited the world as opposed to having, like, some acute, precise thoughts about, like, the philosophy of everything. But, yeah, this noir one is just – it's very easy to just kind of get lost in it and just to, to follow this very, like, simple little story that he has. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Kyle? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) no, but I mean, my overall impression is I I think Daniel's right that it's kind of just like, hey, do a noir story. (laughs) It's a a genre film, you know, it's a it's an homage. What if we could put this future tech world that we know in the Matrix? Let's put it in a world with archaic technologies and see what it would look like. Um, And I, I think it's pretty cool. And it's like. It's uniting the worlds of steampunk and cyberpunk uh, into this sort of noir punk or cyber noir. Cyber noir. Yeah, maybe that needs to be more of a thing. Yeah. Or, well, isn't it tech noir is what uh, is the bar in Terminator? I think the first Terminator movie. There you hmm, go. Tech okay. noir. Interesting. Tech noir. I like that. So Matriculated is from, it's written directed by Peter Chung. He's from Aeon Flux fame. And Aeon mm-hmm. Flux is a show I never really watched as a kid. All these other things, I'm, oh, oh, sorry, all these other directors and animators, I'm a little bit more familiar with, with their work. But Aeon Flux, I'm not really into. I don't really like the style that much. I'm not too crazy about the design of everything. But yeah, we get this really strange kind of, I think it's like this inception story where they're trying to give this idea to this robot, this machine, to essentially bridge the gap and sort of collaborate with humans, but they have to do it by going into the Matrix and, and doing it there as opposed to doing it in the real world. But I got kind of lost in this one, so I wanted to know what your two thoughts were, what your, two, what your thoughts were on it, because yeah, this one is kind of odd to me. You go ahead, Kyle. Yeah, I'm kind of with you, Thomas. Like, I'm, you know, I walk away confused every time. I can't quite follow it. It's kind of long and it's not a lot of dialogue. Um, I mean, I do kind of like this idea of, like, what do machines think about, you know? I mean, that's kind of what it's trying to pin down in a certain way is when you plug a machine into the matrix, you know, um, and, and like you said, you know, they're trying to, in, you know, do this inception. They're trying to sort of trick it into wanting to be with on the human side or something like i don't really even quite get the premise but what i kind of took away from it is that these machines have like flesh envy right like the one thing that they don't have and can't experience is like fleshly pleasure and like sexuality in the human sense and there's something um overwhelmingly attractive and magnetic about that that this robot is drawn to and it does lead to it, to sort of transcend its programming inside with the humans when the attack on the human outpost or whatever comes. Um, and you can attribute it to, oh, he like, uh, you know, was fond of this, he had been like tricked and implanted with this desire for this one human being, woman. But I think it's also, it's the sort of uh, sexual desire, romantic lust as a sort of uh, fundamentally superpowered um force in the world which yeah i mean i don't know if that's the takeaway but that's kind of what i took away um so i mean i i really like this one so so one, something i read about this is that 
originally Peter Chung wasn't supposed to make one of these, that they had a different animator attached uh, who was going to come in and write and direct something. But they had dropped out, so Peter Chung came in pretty last minute. And rumor is on the internet that the Wachowskis don't uh, think of this one as canon. Um, like there's a, I think in, I think in one of the video games, I think in Path of Neo, there's a cutscene where you're getting clips from the Animatrix, and this is the only short that doesn't have any clips in it. Huh. Um, Interesting. But um, but yeah, I really like this one. I like that it flips things around so that the humans are putting the machines into a simulation. Um, the idea being that, you know, we're going to put them in the simulation so that they can experience what humanity has to offer. They can experience empathy um, and compassion. And when we release them from that, they will have to then make a choice. They're going to they're gonna make a, a choice with kind of one-sided information, but they're going to make a choice about do they want to continue to kill humans or not. Um, and I just, I really like the way it plays out where, you know, this, this machine enters the simulation and they have their machine body and they there's this like weird centipede creature inside of the machine that uh you know it, it comes out it, it exit exits and the machine body becomes more of a humanoid body and they're chasing around all the other humans who are nude running around in the psychedelic space and so the machine has lost its machine body they are in a space where they are completely disempowered. They cannot make sense of it. Walls are closing and shifting around them. And so it's sort of like, to me, it feels kind of like an ego death or something like that. Like the machine has yeah. lost its, completely lost its sense of self. And it has given itself over to, um, you know, its captors who seem to be, you know, benevolent. And so when it finally finds this this weird centipede creature that was inside it earlier it places it's this weird uh scene where it like places a cube on top of it and the centipede crawls up into it and it becomes this tree and that tree expands and it creates this sinister presence and that tree is gonna is gonna kill the machine and it's a human who sets them free so now it's creating a scenario where it's like okay the humans have rescued me from myself they have rescued me from this darker part of myself and so that is what creates the situation where now the machine is going to defend the people. Um, and so, but then it's fucking crazy the way this, this one ends because then we get like the sentinels and the other machines coming to, to attack the humans. The humans all rip themselves out of the simulation to, to fight. They get completely fucked up. And the only people left standing, the only figures left standing are this uh, machine who has just gone through the simulation and the woman who brought him there, uh, brought them there. And it ends with the machine putting the woman back in the simulation because I guess it has become so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Infatuated with her, infatuated with the scenario that it just wants to be locked in this simulation with her forever. <laughs> And this is, so So in my ordering of the shorts, this was the last one that played. And it's such a fucking bleak way to end this series of shorts. Um, but yeah, I, I really liked this one. Yeah. How did you interpret the ending? Because, you know, I think the sense you get is that it's an unbridgeable divide because once he tries to reunite with her, reconnect with her in the machine world, she is now horrified and repulsed by him yeah. uh, because the machines have all killed all of her compatriots, presumably. Um, but I wonder if that is also trying to say, you know, that 
this is a bridge that can never be crossed uh, for whatever reason. And, and if that is something important that this short has to say or not, and maybe that's why it's not considered canon. I don't know. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't know what to make of it in terms of what is the short saying. Ultimately, um, it just comes off as like so. So we've talked about like the cipher dilemma where sometimes humans in the real world decide they want to go back into the matrix. And so in this case, the robot has been given a simulation that is more appealing than reality. Um, and so it's kind of now, now the robot is deciding what sort of world it wants to live in. And it is a world where it is taking this unfortunate woman captive. Uh, I don't know what it's saying about the relationship between man and machine in that um, or about our consciousness, but uh, it's, it's it was just a very unpleasant way to end. Yeah, I would think so. That seems to be a really downbeat. I, I don't think ending on the final flight of the Osiris is a is a better beat <laughs> to end on. But I, yeah, matriculated is my least favorite one, so I I wouldn't be happy with ending on that one. But it has a it has a a little monkey in it. A monkey with it plugs. Does, yeah. They put plugs on that monkey. Either they freed the monkey because it has plugs, <laughs> or they installed plugs on the monkey. They freed the monkey. I like that idea better. All right, so. Yeah. Flight of the Osiris, final flight. Yeah, I get. Uh, let me break this one down. So basically, the way we both watch this movie has been different. Daniel's version had Final Flight of the Osiris at the beginning, and I think me and Kyle's had this the uh, Final Flight at the end. And yeah, I think this is uh, like a really standout one for a few reasons because okay, it's directed by Andy Jones from Square Pictures, and it has a, a very distinct look it's one of the uh, few that's 3d animated and it's mostly yeah it takes place inside of the matrix and then inside of the osiris and yeah it's basically like a, a little mini chase with this crew like they're trying to relay some information to zion they discover the drills essentially so it's like predating the matrix reloaded but it's <laughs> mostly a story about this crew and yeah i I don't know how well this one is aged. I guess I'll ask our guest. What do you think about Final Flight of the Osiris, Kyle? Uh, I was over it. I turned it <laughs> off. I'll be honest. Like, literally, it's just a 3D animated version of sequence we've already seen in the real Matrix, basically. I mean, it's not literally, but it's the exact same thing. It's like a samurai sword fight with some sexual tension. It's uh, a chase through the boring tunnels that you guys talked about in the last one. So I don't yeah, know those tunnels. <laughs> I mean, I I guess it's kind of a sexy fantasy to have of like having a sword fight where you're undressing each other with blades. But like, I feel like I've seen that in a million movies. So I don't know. Yeah, I think this is the least interesting one. Um, it feels most like the movies, but it's CG. And it, it reminds me of like Final Fantasy, that Final Fantasy movie they made, Spirits Within. Um, mm -hmm. And... I don't I think know. It's the same director, literally. Is it okay? Yeah. Um, I know this guy. He was an animation supervisor on Godzilla '98, which is a a, fa a show favorite. Uh, the Jungle Book and The Lion <laughs> King and Avatar. He... If you guys ever want to talk more Godzilla, I'd be a good guest. For I want to do that as the next series. So we'll see. But uh, yeah, strip yeah. sword fight. I'm like, it goes on too long. I feel like. It's a weird for me. It was a weird way to start this series. Uh, it just goes on too long. Yeah, the I machines bet. are drilling, <laughs> and there's like a scene where so when the woman goes into the matrix to drop off the package, there's like a scene where she's diving 
and she does like all these tricks on the way down. And I remember just thinking like, this is excessive. Does she need to do this? Um, it's, it's so great because it's literally a time crunch. They're like, we have to get this message to Zion before our ship explodes. And they're like, all right, get down there in the hurry. And I wrote it, down, she literally does like the Spider-Man PS4 thing. She's just getting style points. She's just yeah. <laughs> flipping and making I mean, poses as she's going to the ground. I guess she knows she's going to die. So maybe she's trying to live it up before. But <laughs> Oh, God. But yeah, this is this is the worst one in my opinion. It's just well, setting it's just, up the game and reloading. and like all the other yeah. ones, all the other ones give you some sort of weird, different look at some totally different, separate thing, kind of from what we've seen in the movies. And then this is not that. So like, I just didn't really get why this is even here. Yeah, it's like information that was summed up in another scene and reloaded. So, but this. This came out before Reloaded came out, right? Because I know this was attached to Dreamcatcher um, in theaters. I uh, believe so. If this was June, I think it came yeah. out maybe after Reloaded, but before Revolutions. Reloaded was 2003, but it was May. So these this was all 2003, basically. It does bear mentioning that that is a pretty amazingly impressive and visionary thing that they did. Yeah. To have this totally separate but also totally integral part of the story and the universe and the backstory and the history be something that is completely separate from their main blockbuster movie franchise but that they obviously spent so much time on and enlisted all these wonderful collaborative partners around the world i mean it's a pretty dope ambitious vision that they brought to life um and the fact that they also included all the other stuff with the game like i think has there ever been anything since attempted by like individual filmmakers to so quickly build an entire content universe? Like, I don't know. It's really impressive. So yeah, this is something that I've been thinking about because we do have content universes like the Marvel universe and shit like that. But like, but that was a hundred years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but like, has, has there been anything since the matrix where it was a multimedia franchise that started as a movie and you know it wasn't based on any previously existing work it started as a movie like since the matrix has there been anything like that mm. you guys would know me, but in <laughs> my eyes no i mean in, instead it's the opposite right most hollywood studios they want to take existing properties that are already proven to be successful brands and then just turn those into larger infinite universes that can then be capitalized on the strength of the existing brand but like that's why this is so much cooler to me than like the Marvel thing, which is they took already strong characters and stories and uh, universally recognizable figures and then continued to build worlds. These guys, these artists yeah. came up with a totally, uh, you know, deep and complex social commentary that is also a completely unique aesthetic that's been incredibly yeah. influential. And then produced all sorts of, like you said, multimedia content that um, it was self-consciously attempting to create uh, a whole universe. And I guess they are going to finally make some sequels now, like you guys have been mentioning. Um, but it is kind of interesting also that it didn't sort of immediately spin into more of a serialized franchise. Maybe that's just because it was so dependent on the creative talents of two individuals. I don't know. Yeah, and I think we'll, we're kind of easing into the conversations about the games too, but like there were... There were 
the games weren't like super well reviewed. There's kind of like mixed reviews with the games, and so I think by the time Reloaded showed up and people were kind of so so on it, then Revolutions arrived and people were like, oh, okay, this is not that great. That there's Matrix fatigue. Like people were just kind of done with it and moved on. There was just there was a lot of Matrix stuff when it was out. It was literally all engrossing. Yeah, it just couldn't maintain its momentum. It's like yeah, the yeah. sequels weren't as beloved as people would have hoped and then yeah the animatrix came out i didn't even see the, this is the first time i watched the animatrix i wish i would have watched it sooner because i like this as a package more than i like the sequels i think but um yeah i was gonna say like while, while watching the animatrix i was like this might be my favorite favorite matrix movie like compared to the <laughs> I, don't know, I think yeah just in like general reloaded is up there I don't know. Like I have such it's it's weird because I obviously the first one is amazing and fucking flawless. But I am a sucker and I'm like I'm very attached to two and I also am really attached to just a lot of the sequences in this movie and so I feel like yeah, I want to rewatch this one a lot more now that I've kind of caught back up with it and yeah, I don't know. Just the games I play them but they like weren't games that stuck out super in my mind when thinking about games I played back in the day. Yeah, I have played Enter the Matrix. I tried playing Path of Neo. I probably got, I got through the office. I got into the training stuff and it was just way too clunky for me. Uh, granted, I did try it out in this past month. <laughs> um, I didn't play it at the time. I think though, I mean, if we can transition to talking a little bit about Enter the Matrix, that was a really big formative game for me. Um, I'm yeah. just, <laughs> specific memory of it being the first game that I ever I'm a PC gamer, so it was the first game I ever had that I think was over a gigabyte. Okay. <laughs> so you had Crazy a clear now. space for it? No, I had to buy a hard drive. <laughs> oh, whoa. <laughs> I literally had to buy a hard drive and I think maybe a new graphics card uh, in order to play this game. So it was this massive, ambitious thing. It had, I, I was reading earlier, an hour of extra footage, mm -hmm. you know, filmed with the crew and the you know, characters yeah. from the movie. So additional, an hour of additional footage, which was really cool and had never been done. And to my knowledge has never been done since. Um, yeah. And then it also had all these other elements that I think were kind of revolutionary. I mean, it was one of the first games I had ever played. Um, first of all, where you have two different storylines going mm -hmm. where you're playing different characters, which was cool. It had this hacking element, which is now, yes. I mean, has been featured and replicated in many different games. But that was the first game I'd ever seen where there's a hacking mechanism. And it was also just like kind of, you didn't know how to do it. And you kind of had to like Google it and find out on some forums or something if you wanted to figure out even how to do the hacking or like be a hacker, I guess. Um, and then <laughs> yeah. it, had, it had like the bullet time stuff, which I guess Max Payne kind of had too. But like the bullet time shit was dope. Um, and I don't know, I've been playing Cyberpunks 2077 recently. Mm -hmm. um, and you can definitely see the influence uh, of maybe Enter the Matrix, but just the whole Matrix universe has been so, uh, it's cast a long shadow, shall we say, the same way Blade Runner has yeah. over the whole genre of cyberpunk. And I think, you know, uh, the Matrix deserves a lot of credit for that. I think Enter the Matrix might be the first game, and it might be one of the only games I can think of where one of the protagonists is a black woman. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, it's like I can't think of anything that precedes yeah. it unless it's like a fighting game, but that's a bunch of characters. Yeah, and the way that they do it, I think, is is really great. There's like the 
uh, dual storyline things in like Resident Evil games that kind of happens later, mm-hmm. but they uh, feel kind of separate. I haven't played a ton of Resident Evil games, but they feel a little bit like separate. But the way that Enter the Matrix did it, as far as my memory, was like, yeah, Trin- uh, not Trinity, um, Niobe and Ghost, they're from the same ship, and so they're kind of a little bit closer as far as like the things that they're doing and, you know, like the just the whole plot of, like I said, that that like freeway chasing there's a lot of stuff happening adjacent to what's happening in the matrix reloaded and so i just yeah. like the way that it it, weave, it weaves in in a way that i feel is, is relevant it's, i it's been almost 20 years since i played or however many years since i played it but yeah I, I remember really digging that and yeah the hacking part took over my playing of the game like i was like playing the game and then i was like okay now i'm just gonna be online looking for ways to like get infinite ammo instead and so i just remember the shift kind of happening i was like i'm just like typing stuff now like i'm not, like, I'm not doing any like actual missions I, I like that so yeah it's for sure revolutionary absolutely like cutting edge as far as multimedia involving all of it just to tell the story yeah i don't have a ton of memories of enter the matrix uh i remember renting it and i remember them making a big deal about motion captured combat and when you play it the way the motion combat motion captured combat actually works out it feels like every time you get into a fighting stance you're players feet are just sliding around the room um i don't know if you felt the same way but yeah it feels like everyone is like fighting on ice um but yeah it was still fun i really enjoyed like doing cartwheels and while shooting people in slow motion and stuff and and i think it might be one of the first games to um to coin the term focus for slow-mo i'm not positive but i know i've seen that elsewhere I was going to say, at least from personal experience, Enter, Enter the Matrix is the first game I played when I realized that enemies were, like, if, if you didn't pass a certain point, the enemies will continue to spawn. And so, like, mm. I remember very vividly, like, doing that in the, like, there was, I think it's the, like, the lobby scene. And I was just like, if I just, like, don't go through this door, like, they just keep, they keep sending SWAT team members at me. And it just, like, just never ended. I just thought that was just super funny. And I was like, yeah, I'm really in the Matrix now. Just crack the code um thoughts on path of neo never played it neither <laughs> i yeah like i said i tried playing it and it's just it looks worse than enter the matrix somehow it came out a couple years later um maybe it was just the version i was playing but it's super clunky <laughs> go ahead have either of you guys played cyberpunk i've i've played like the first hour oh word. yeah i yeah. haven't it's dope as hell yeah i want to play it i'm just waiting for them to release a a functioning version of it well we got like a super gaming computer so we're not having any of the functionality problems that uh, the gamers are the pleb console i have a gaming pc (laughs) but i'm still like i'll wait like i i played witcher 3 years after it came out um all the uh, expansion had been out already and that was fantastic so might as well wait it'll only get better you ever play the matrix online no <laughs> i did play I was... sorry go ahead I was... Oh, I was just about to be like why isn't there a matrix online but <laughs> there, was, there was yeah <laughs> um i did play i remember on the matrix website after the first movie came out there was a flash game where it's just um it's like the lobby and pillars and just like people popping out <laughs> around the pillars and you just <laughs> use your mouse to like click guys and like rack up points. Uh, a damn lobby. <laughs> yeah, I played that for hours. Yeah. Amazing. Well, dang. Um, do you have any other parting Matrix thoughts, Kyle? Yeah, just the last thing I'll say is just 
I think it's easy to get lost in uh, some of the, you know, the aesthetics and the action sequences and the philosophical musings and all of that. And, you know, all those things have their charms and their uh, drawbacks as well. But I think, you know, one of the things we really have to give The Matrix more credit for is having such a, um, I think, profound social commentary um, about the sort of, and sort of a tech pessimist uh, view of the world. And the fact that these movies came out right on sort of, it was right after the dot-com boost or, or boom, uh, you know, bust, uh, boom and bust. And yeah. right at the moment where the internet was really coming into its own and uh, digital civilization was just, just around the corner. Like it was in sight and you could see it coming and you could predict it, but you didn't really know what it was going to feel and look like. I mean, the fact that they have, uh, you know, pay phones mm-hmm. in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, we didn't quite know what it looked like, but they gave us a sort of, an aesthetic language to envision cyberspace. And I think also an important dark pessimistic vision of the uh, sort of natural places that seeding our whole lives to technology and data can and will lead to. And I think that some of that social commentary stuff is, it's subtle in, in the Matrix movies. It's either too subtle or too on the nose to kind of warrant I think the respect that it deserves, but I think that, you know, the, the same that way that we look at sort of dystopian sci-fi from someone like Philip K. Dick and really have a reverence for the way yeah. that when in the 20th century was able to really uh, predict our future tech dilemmas. Um, I, I think the matrix d- deserves a lot of credit for that. And I think that influence, you know, that sort of, that's what cyberpunk to me is, is like this, this punk mentality of resistance to uh, to the utopian fantasies of and and promises promises that uh, technology seem to hold for us, and maybe that you know resistance and sort of dissent and liberation are um, in the face of seemingly infinite technological power is a um, that's a moral that I can sort of get behind and. And that resonates with me, especially now that we're actually living in a tech dystopia. (laughs) Yeah, on point. Uh, What have I been watching? I rewatched Phantom Thread today, which is, you've seen Phantom Thread, right? I have not seen Phantom Thread. Dude, it's on HBO. Go watch it. Um, Okay. It's so fucking good. Like, the first time I saw it, I saw it at Alamo Drafthouse. And I think they were doing like a roadshow type thing because it came with a little booklet showing off some of the uh, concept art from the movie, you know, write-ups and stuff. I think I still have it lying around somewhere. But, um, yeah, just on rewatch, knowing where that movie goes. And it's... So So, what do you know about Phantom Thread? Do you know anything about it? Uh, I know it's about, like, a designer who's obsessed over fashion. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's about a, this man who makes dresses. He's a fashion mm-hmm. designer. And he has it. He lives a very rigid life, very by-the-rules um, he really wants order and structure in his life. And he, this, this woman comes into his life who's much younger than he is, and she's more free-spirited. And it's, but she really admires his work. They have this romantic relationship, and it's just like the collision between how these two people operate. And Johnny Greenwood did the music, and the music is fucking fantastic. Like, go listen to the score. If you don't have time to watch the movie, go listen to the score, because it's great. 
Um, okay. It's hard to imagine what this movie would be without his music. Um, but yeah, wa- go, go watch it twice. <laughs> it, it's really good. <laughs> okay. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> but uh, sure. yeah, I watched list. that. I watched that and I watched the first episode of the 80s cartoon Gem and the Holograms. Did you, did you ever watch Gem and the Holograms? No, I've heard about this. I feel like I've seen a parody on Adult Swim, you know, Robot Chicken or something like that. Uh, it's really bad, but it's like a really good, <laughs> it's really good background viewing because it's about uh, a pop band. So there's like three songs in the first episode. So you can just kind of like have it on in the background and just enjoy the musical aspects of it. Nice. Um, it's so Jem has a synthesizer that can speak and it can project holograms. And so it projects the image of what the band looks like. And they are going up against an opposing band that's actually called the Misfits. Uh, but it's just <laughs> a girl synth rock band or something. Um, but yeah, it's really fun. That's it's sweet. free. You can watch, you can watch it on Tubi for free. Um, nice. And yeah, go check it out. How about you? Uh, this uh, something I didn't watch this week, but recently I watched Jojo Rabbit for the first time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And you've you seen that, Kyle? We're getting thumb, th- thumbs up from Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. My girlfriend's a big uh, Taika Waititi fan, a stan, if you will. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Jojo Rabbit was, was priceless. Yeah. Yeah. I was blown away. It like inspired me to start writing again because I was just like, fuck, this script is just so good. And yeah, just everything about this, like, show not tell and just the fantasy aspect with the hit him and the Hitler thing. And just like, like him kicking him out of the window at the end. It's just like such a satisfying thing on just so many yeah. different levels. And yeah, just that movie is just like whimsical, heartbreaking, like adorable, like his little psychic character. I forget his name, but like, yeah, like just everything yeah. that movie just does everything right. And yeah, I, I kind of missed the hype when it was out in theaters in 2000. It was a lot of stuff when it was in theaters. And so I kind of regret missing that hype and not seeing it when everyone was talking about it. Uh, Have you seen uh, What We Do in the Shadows, his no. documentary about vampires? No, yeah, I really want to watch though. Highly recommend. Yeah, that one's really good. The show's really good too on FX. Really? Yeah. The show, like, I think the first couple episodes are kind of a retread of what the movie did, but it eventually like establishes its own voice and it's, it's pretty good. It has Matt Berry too, right? Um, yeah. Matt Berry's in it. Yeah. Did you watch WandaVision this week, Thomas? <laughs> I did. And I liked the episode a lot. I thought it was super weird. It was <laughs> such a trippy episode of TV, but I really enjoyed it. Uh, I, honestly, I like, I'm trying to remember what even happened. It's, so it's, this is well, when we get baby vision, right? And the intro. Yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's another, like, it's more genre-focused kind of in Wanda's world. We're going to spoil this for you, Kyle. I know you're not a super Marvel person, so sorry about this. Um, but, yeah, I, I like it because it's more about Vision, like, him kind of unraveling and going against Wanda and, like, trying and discovering what's actually happening. And there's some really weird scenes in it that I enjoy. Like, he's the co-worker thing where he, like, brings him out, and then he, like, he's freaking out and talking about, like being under mind control and stuff and yeah like she tries to like roll the credits on him yeah. mid-convert like mid-argument and she's like you're not gonna roll the credits on me yeah it's, it was silly it was fun and i enjoyed yeah, it yeah which is the rolling the credits thing was kind of a trip because <laughs> the scene is only ramping up as the structure is falling apart yeah um but yeah i feel like the show kind of had to pivot to being about vision because we've already been delivered all the answers for like what the mysteries are so now it's doing the Hitchcock thing where the audience knows more than the characters. And so the only thing to explore is the drama of this character not knowing the information that the audience has. 
but then yeah we end with that reveal what did you think of that reveal uh, i thought it was pretty silly like as it was happening i was like is this show gonna make a really ballsy decision right now and it fucking did and i i walked away really enjoying it because i was like okay if you, we're gonna have this lore and all these characters and all this whole thing with recasting and everything i feel like if you're gonna dress it in a way why not do it in a way that's just like on the nose and on genre and just like he walks in and he makes a joke about can calls vision a highlighter or something like that and then you have like the audience laughter and i'm like okay yeah just yeah make it weave it into the way that the genre things are playing out and i really enjoy it and i thought that was yeah i think it's a, a ballsy move in a way that yeah i was against the cameo thing in the last episode but i feel like i'm gonna eat my words on that because i was like when he showed up i was like okay sure let's let's why not at, at this point i'm like why not so kyle if you don't know what the hell we're talking about <laughs> Um, the character of Wanda, she had a brother who had died in one of the previous movies. Um, she gets a knock on her door in this episode. She answers it. It's her brother, but not only is it her brother, but it's the actor who played that character in the X-Men movies, not made by Disney, not made by Marvel. So it is potentially opening the door for the X-Men. I don't, I'm not totally sure what the fuck is happening. <laughs> yeah. You're like, who, who the fuck cares? <laughs> uh, oh, dude, I only care about WandaVision for the little Uzi Vert memes that came out this week. <laughs> oh man. The $24 million diamond put in his forehead. That's WandaVision, right? Isn't that what that is? Uh, yeah, it is. I have, it I'm is not familiar with meme. <laughs> yes, you, you are correct. I'll bridge the gap because yeah, Vision is who that happens to. And so yeah, um, Daniel, what he's referring to, there's this rapper that literally this past week, he put a diamond into his forehead. <laughs> and so yeah. Wait, the, literally the, he did this? Not like this literally, is real? it's like a piercing <laughs> implant. It's like a it's like a piercing thing. I, I don't know the okay. technical thing, but it's it's like attached to That his sounds forehead. like he literally yeah. did. <laughs> yeah, and so the memes are just like photoshopping his face with Thanos like grabbing the, okay. the diamond out of it. And it's just like so over the top, but yeah, it's very appropriate for the fact that WandaVision is out and it happens to Vision and in fucking Avengers. Um going back to this reveal though, what what the hell do you think is going to happen? Um like what mm, what, do you, what does this I, mean? I, I I don't know. Honestly, I really don't know. I I think it's gonna get stranger and i think they're just going to play with that a little bit more but i i, well, I think that might be the extent of it because the I next doctor be strange though. movie is the multiverse of madness and the rumors are that in the next spider-man movie we're getting toby Maguire, we're getting andrew garfield um alfred molina like yeah. everyone from the past spider-man movies so i guess they're just like this is the official point where they start leaning into you know other movie franchises that have played with these characters and playing with the multiverse. Yeah, that's that's I, I now say, the biggest crossover event is we've crossed over all of our own characters. Let's cross over other movie characters until we get to DC versus Marvel. Well, yeah, I appreciate it because at the end of the day, it's like it became a game of fucking licensing. And so like the fact that all these characters have been in separate areas is just because Fox owned the rights to one and, you know, Disney owns the rights to another. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I like the characters above all. Like, I just like Quicksilver. I like, I don't care mm -hmm. who he is or, you know, what movie universe he came from. I just like his powers and I like his relationship to Wanda. And so character above all, just have him show up just so we can kind of have some fun stuff. And I think, that's my bottom line. So, it's just... but but it's it's more than that because it's not just a recast, right? Because like, um, I I heard that um, so they do audio description for for visually impaired people, 
Um, And the way the audio description describes the scene, it says uh, that she opens the door to reveal Quicksilver from the X-Men movies. Like, it, like, makes a point of saying, like, this is the Quicksilver from another cinematic universe, I guess. Yeah, even Kat Dennings jokes about it, too. What was that, Kyle? I'm just this means we're going to get Jessica Alba back as Invisible Girl in Fantastic Four. <laughs> and if they do that, wasn't Chris Evans in that movie? So No, yeah. that was in the OG one. Or, no, that was in the, the reboot. Oh, in the reboot? No you're, yeah. no, you're right. When, yeah, Chris, Chris Evans the Fantastic was Four. the Human Torch yeah. in the Jessica Alba Fantastic Four, right? Oh, I guess that was before he was a big star. Yeah. I've always thought I, I was under the impression I'd never seen him. So we before. might <laughs> get Chris Evans in the Marvel Universe as Captain America and the Human Torch and Michael B. Jordan as the Human Torch and <laughs> Killmonger. <laughs> yeah. These dudes are just getting so many checks. Jeez Louise. Save some yeah. for the rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> and then, wasn't it yeah, fucking um, Josh Brolin was Th- Thanos and he's in the Deadpool movies and the Deadpool movies are now going to be part of this too? Correct. Yes. He plays... Um... Yeah, he plays Cage or something. Yeah, he plays like someone related to the X Men too, which is even more, more ridiculous. Yeah, or so Cable. He plays we're just Cable gonna have plays, yeah. Cable. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, we're just gonna have actors playing multiple roles now. I guess why not? Sure, fuck it. <laughs> Who knows what these movies yeah, it's are? Just, it's literally it's just fuck it. Why not? I think that's what every time yeah. Kevin Feige walks into the the room, he's like, "All right, guys, it's gonna have our m- monthly meeting. All right, fuck it. Why not?" And then he walks out. Yeah. All right. Well, that's what the audiences wants. They they want they want people they recognize. That's yeah. it. <laughs> um, so does that wrap things up? Yeah, I guess I was gonna tell you what we're gonna watch next week since it's my choice. Um, gonna hope, hoping you haven't seen it. Have you seen Judas and the Black Messiah yet? No, I want to watch it. That's right. Well, that's what we're watching. All right. All right. Cool. So yeah, join us next week on Vague Zone. We will be watching Judas and the Black Messiah. This has been episode 26 of Vague Zone. Thank you for joining us, Kyle, and sharing your very poignant thoughts on the Animatrix yes, and thank you for the coming. entire Matrix lore. If you would like to contact us, you can email us at vaguezone at gmail.com. If you want to follow us at Twitter, you can hit us up at Vaguezone. If you want to suggest to us questions or movies to watch, we would love to and include you in on the dialogue because you know we're all watching movies we're all chilling so yeah let us know what you're watching and we will respond yeah this has been episode 26 thank you for listening i'm thomas and i am daniel and we will catch you on the next one all right thanks